0: This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review.
1: Welcome to Trumpet Hour this Friday, January 19th, 2024. I'm Philip Nice, assembled with our four main Philadelphia trumpet writers here in our studio in Oklahoma in the middle of the United States are Jeremiah Jacques. Good to be here. And Andrew Miller. Hello. And in our studio there in Warwickshire in the middle of the United Kingdom, we have Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And Mihailo Zekic. Thanks for having us. Thank you all for joining us. This week, we start here in North America, here in the Western Hemisphere, and the part of America we call the Midwest. I might or might not be biased when I call it the mid-best. Some people with other biases call it flyover country, but what happened there this week made news coast to coast and overseas as well. So Andrew Miller, you watch all of America and Britain and the nations that are historically related To America and Britain, start us off with a rundown of news from
2: these nations, then hit us with that big news from the Midwest. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau criticized Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's position on Palestinian statehood after Netanyahu claimed that the two-state solution was dead. South Carolina's legislature passed a bill banning transgender mutilation of children. And investigative journalist James O'Keefe uncovered a shadow network of secretive nonprofits that are facilitating the invasion of illegals on the U.S. border. Each of those big stories, but give us the biggest story out of the Midwest. Yeah, the biggest story out of the Midwest this week is Donald Trump's Iowa victory. They had a caucus in Iowa, the first caucus to determine who the Republican nominee is going to be. The primary contestants were Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, and Nikki Haley. Uh, I think there were a couple others that didn't do very well. But Donald Trump got twice as many delegates as the runner-up, who was Ron DeSantis. And so huge margin of um, victory So it's definitely seen that Donald Trump is very beloved by the Republican Party, uh, seems to have a pretty sure clinch on the nomination. And many people on the Democratic side of the party are really starting to get nervous, as is evidenced by the increase in lawfare against Donald Trump. Now, we've covered before on this program that like there have been four times in American history that president's been impeached. Two of those times have been Donald Trump. And one of those times was, like, in the 1900s. Donald Trump's been indicted four times for 91 separate crimes. But we're now getting some information on just how biased some of these prosecutors making these 91 allegations are. In particular, despite former National Security Advisor Susan Rice's allegation that the Obama and Biden administrations always do everything by the book, Two of the general prosecutors involved in these 91 court cases, New York Attorney General Latita James and District Attorney Fannie Willis in Georgia, the White House has confirmed that they have visited the Biden White House multiple times. These aren't just district attorneys in New York and Georgia investigating Business corruption at the Trump Organization or allegations that Trump tried to pressure Georgia's officials into digging up fraudulent votes. These so-called district attorneys and attorney generals are back and forth to the White House getting their marching orders from people directly connected with Barack Obama. This isn't that Trump just did 91 unrelated things. It is very much that Obama is centrally controlling a targeted lawfare political campaign against his opponent. That would be news enough probably to be top story today. Uh, But it gets worse in the case of District Attorney Fannie Willis. Fannie Willis, just to remind our listeners – She's the district attorney in Georgia who is claiming that Donald Trump abused his position as president to blackmail Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger into finding fraudulent ballots. In that court case, District Attorney Fannie Willis is working with another official. She's the district attorney for Georgia, but particularly working with a special prosecutor for Fulton County named Nathan Wade. So Fannie Willis is going back and forth to the Obama administration, getting her marching orders from Biden administration officials, and then working with Nathan Wade to make this case. Nathan Wade, in terms, has found out that he's accepted $700,000 worth of payments for his work against Trump that he did not claim on his taxes. And he didn't claim it on his taxes because he was currently divorcing his stay-at-home wife. And as they're dividing up their worldly possessions, he didn't want to share that $700,000 with her, even though she's staying at home with no job taking care of his children. He wanted to use that money for something else, which they have now uncovered included cruises and vacations with Fannie Willis, whom he was committing adultery with. Right. So the Fulton County prosecutor investigating the Trump case is... Both figuratively and literally sleeping with the Georgia district attorney who's in contact with Obama's people in Washington. Right. And so that's good background to keep in mind whenever they come out with allegations against Trump, is like these are not unbiased prosecutors. They're literally in bed with each other and taking their orders from the Obama White House.
1: Right, and remember, this is all pointed at getting some type of conviction that could then bar President Trump from being eligible for office, no matter how many people want to vote for him. (laughs) So you have federal office holders using their offices, using their power, and using their taxpayer money not only to enrich themselves but also to work together to scratch each other's backs, so to speak. So this is obviously horrible corruption. There are other instances, I'm sure, of corruption like this. What is it that makes this so important?
2: Yeah, well, the thrust of the issue is actually Jack Smith's prosecution to actually find a crime that will bar Trump from holding office again. So that way, it doesn't matter if he's the most popular man in Iowa since Bob Dole. He can't run for office because he's been legally barred. from running for office. And there's just a ton of details in this legal campaigns that you have to understand to really see what they're trying to do here. One article we can put in the show notes is this week's Trumpet Brief, Donald Trump loved by Iowans, hated by the apparatus, which one actually focuses on a prophecy in Isaiah 10 verses 5 and 6 about God sending Assyria as the rod of his anger against a hypocritical nation, because some of these 91 crimes are like, oh, Trump paid hush money to a pornographic actress and didn't report it. And now, granted, the that's a separate legal case than the one Fannie Willis has evolved into, but they're all working together. And it's like, so you can be it's like, OK, well, maybe Trump didn't report Every business transaction in his record books, but you're hiding $700,000 in legal fees from your stay-at-home wife so you can commit adultery with the district attorney. So worst case scenario for Trump, this is definitely like pot calling kettle black here. You can see that just steeped in hypocrisy in a way that really makes that prophecy come to life. And then also the other verse that that trumpet brief goes through is the one in Amos, verse seven through eight, God promising to spare and pass by the nation one more time, indicating that, like I said, Donald Trump is coming back. God has promised to pass by one more time. Even with as popular as Trump is in Iowa, it is going to take a certain element of divine intervention to um, just defeat this whole like leviathan of media, academia, political, legal lawfare that's being waged against him. Right. And in
1: Andrew's note to me from before the show, he points to America Under Attack. The only book that the Trumpet produces, I believe, that has its own website, AmericaUnderAttack.com. And you can get reading on that instantly at AmericaUnderAttack.com and order your own free, high quality, hardbound version of America Under Attack. Now let's move from America and its brother nations all the way across the
0: globe to Asia. Jeremiah Jacques, give us the rundown. Sure, yeah. First, a story here from North Korea. On Tuesday, Supreme Leader Kim Jong-un announced a major U-turn in his nation's relations with South Korea, and he designated South Korea as a hostile nation, and he called it enemy number one. Kim Jong-un is even saying that he now plans to rewrite North Korea's constitution To reflect this change. And the diplomat called this shift a, quote, big deal because it means the Korean peninsula has now devolved from a state of armistice to one where conflict looms at any moment, end quote. So pretty sobering assessment there. And the stakes, if a conflict erupts, could, you know, scarcely be higher since South Korea is a U.S. ally hosting 28,500 American troops And since North Korea is a nuclear power, and North Korea is also thought to have been given increased help from Russia in recent months with uh, the missiles that are designed to deliver its nuclear warheads to their targets. So the diplomat says that this means America could soon be involved in three conflicts, the one in Ukraine, the one in the Middle East, and maybe now also one on the Korean Peninsula as well. So a very chilling possibility there. Next up, a quick update on that war in Ukraine that Russia's waging. Dmitry Medvedev published a worrying statement this week. Medvedev is uh, one of Putin's top allies, and he even pretended to rule Russia for a few years while letting Putin continue to be the actual ruler. And this week, Medvedev, he kind of seemed to say the quiet part out loud. He wrote on Telegram a message, and part of it said, Absolutely any version of Ukraine that is independent that is independent of Russia will serve as a pretext for renewed hostilities for as long as it exists. The likelihood of a new clash will persist indefinitely, almost always. Moreover, there is a one hundred percent chance of a new conflict, no matter what security agreements the West signs with Ukraine. It could happen in ten years or fifty years. End quote. So this is a a fascinating statement to me because it seems to throw cold water on the proposals of men like President Trump, for example, who often say Ukraine should give up some territory in order to have peace with Russia. You know, critics of those kinds of peace plans have always said, well, I'm sorry, but that will just give Russia time to regroup and attack again later. And here we have Dmitry Medvedev saying, you know what, we will attack again later, For as long as Ukraine exists in any form, we will always attack again. So we're coming up on the two-year mark of the full-scale war now. And wow, it, it looks like there's just no end in sight for this horrendous conflict. It was so peaceful relatively for
1: so long. And then we're at war or on the verge of it in, like you say, a few different continents it's just shocking that this is so normal. <laughs> this is a topic of conversation. There might be a war in Korea. there might be a <laughs> war. There is you know a tiny war in the Middle East uh, that could blow up into a big one. There's ongoing years of grinding war in Europe that 's the reality
0: of today what 's the main topic? The big one I wanted to talk about today is that the people of Taiwan just voted for their next president. This was on Saturday. And they ended up electing a man named Lai who who is arguably the most anti-China and the most pro-Taiwanese independence politician to ever win the Taiwanese presidency. So this is terrible news for China. And the results of the vote really put Taiwan on a collision course with China. That's the assessment of many China watchers, including strategist David Roche, and to understand why that's the case, you have to know that the Chinese Communist Party, which is you know the ruling party in China, uh, the only party in China, but they claim Taiwan's land and people as their own. And the Chinese Communist Party has long vowed to bring Taiwan under its control. And they say they will use military force for this if they have to, but that they would prefer for Taiwan to just willingly submit. And so toward this end, The Chinese have a long history of trying to influence Taiwanese elections just in order to, you know, install candidates who are more pro-China, more willing to submit to the Chinese Communist Party. And this latest election was no different. In the lead up to it, the Chinese used really what was quite a wide range of both intimidation tactics and also enticements. They applied economic pressure. They violated Taiwan's airspace with more than 20 spy balloons. They filled Taiwanese social media with all kinds of pro-China propaganda, and they even paid for some extravagant trips to China for certain Taiwanese politicians. So there were both sticks and carrots that China used to try to make the uh, Taiwanese elect a pro-China president, but all of these efforts failed spectacularly with the election of Lai Xingda. He was China's probably, well, actually by far their least favorite candidate since he's a member of Taiwan's most anti China party. And since he's been so outspoken, just calling for Taiwan to officially declare independence. But now he's just about to become the new president. So what we're looking at here is a situation that makes it considerably less likely that Taiwan would willingly submit to a Chinese conquest. And that means that war is now more likely. We're already seeing China launch major military patrols near Taiwan in response to this. There have been uh, 24 warplanes in recent days and at least five warships operating off of Taiwan's coasts. And this is just China, you know, flexing its muscles and showing its displeasure with Taiwan's vote. And all of this could be just a, a small preview of what's to come.
3: Xi Jinping urged the CCP workers to strengthen the patriotic and pro-unification forces in Taiwan and oppose the separatist acts of Taiwan independence. But how likely is that with Lai Ching-te in power? He is for sure not going to deliver what China wants, and that is enough for China to justify an escalated response.
0: That was Molly Gambier with WION, She makes the case plainly there that this could lead to some major conflicts in the near future. So add to the situation in Korea, the
1: situation in the Red Sea, the situation in Europe, the very real possibility of some type of conflict between China and Taiwan.
0: Yes, that's exactly right. This is yet another hotspot that could, you know, blow up at any point. And Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry has actually been commenting on the Taiwan, China dynamic for more than 25 years now, because he does view it as a hot spot that could blow up. And he puts the United States at the dead center of it, since America is really the only thing that has deterred China from using overwhelming force to take Taiwan for so long. Back in 1998, Mr. Flurry wrote about President Bill Clinton in the US making statements that publicly opposed Taiwanese independence. And Mr. Fleury said that it showed that it was only a matter of time before the Chinese would conquer Taiwan. And he said that was sure to happen because of what he called a, quote, pitifully weak-willed America. And Mr. Fleury explained that his understanding of that whole dynamic was built on Bible prophecy, and especially a verse in Leviticus 26 that says America will lose its will to really use its power. And we can link to that article by Mr. Flurry in our show notes. It's called Taiwan Betrayal. And even though it's an older article by now, it remains very relevant and even has, you know, fresh relevance, I think, since tensions around Taiwan are soaring so much right now. That was Taiwan Betrayal, an old 1990s article from Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald
1: Flurry. And that was Jeremiah Jacques, who has been watching Asia for some few years as well and bringing you what's news in the Far East from the Trumpets perspective And from the Far East and Asia, let's come back west a bit to the Middle East and an update from Mihailo Zekic.
4: Yes, so yesterday the United States did its fifth round of strikes on the Houthi rebels in Yemen. Looks like the American involvement in protecting the Red Sea is not going to go away anytime soon. But also the strikes aren't deterring the Houthis from attacking ships, including naval warships as well. So we'll continue to watch as the situation there Escalates. Also, on uh, January 16th and January 17th, there were tit uh, for tat exchanges on the borders of Iran and Pakistan. Some of our listeners and readers of the website may remember when a terror attack happened at the commemorative anniversary of Iranian Super General Qassem Soleimani's funeral. And turns out it was ISIS that did that. Looks like Iran is started to go after some of these Sunni terror groups. And on the 16th, they launched a uh, border strike on what they call terrorists in Pakistan. A handful of people died there. Pakistan didn't take that too lightly, and they uh, launched retaliatory strikes uh, the day after, claiming they are going after separatists from a certain ethnic group that are found both in iran and pakistan since then both sides have tried to downplay everything and de-escalate the situation pakistan of course has nuclear weapons we talk about iran getting nuclear weapons all the time pakistan has them and has had them for decades so it was a pretty brazen move on iran's part to do that but also i think that also informed a little bit of their reaction afterwards on trying to de-escalate the situation So we'll continue to watch as Iran gets less and less afraid to punch above its weight and attack nuclear powers. We expect them to go after one particular power. That's not Pakistan. That's Europe. But certainly going after Pakistan is, again, a brazen move on their part. Yeah, certainly of note, whenever Iran is firing shots,
1: what's the main story that you've got for us out of the Middle East this week?
4: Well, it actually ties into what we just talked about, Iran and nuclear weapons, although it might not sound like it. I'm going to take you right now to Switzerland to hear what an Argentinian had to say. I am speaking of the director general of the International Atomic Energy Agency, Rafael Grossi. He was at the uh, Davos World Economic Forum. That's uh, the annual get-together of the who's who of world power politicians, businessmen, international leaders like Grossi. It's usually also a good forum because everybody's together at the same time to talk about uh, big events, to talk about things that are on their mind, that we get a lot of news of what leaders are planning on doing, what leaders think about certain things and how leaders interact with each other. And Grossi had a few interesting words to say about Iran. Now, Grossi has been the, I guess you could say the point man between Iran and their nuclear program and the international community at large. The purpose of the IAEA is to make sure nuclear reactors and nuclear programs by countries is used for peaceful purposes like energy or medical isotopes or that kind of thing. And to monitor countries that they suspect may be using those programs for nuclear weapons development. Iran, of course, is at the top of the list with that, as we've covered on this program many, many times before. They are the only non-nuclear weapons power to be enriching uranium at 60% uh, enrichment, which is far above anything that people use for civilian purposes. And they have no intent of slowing down despite the sanctions thrown at them by the United States and by others. Grossy, because he has to deal with the Iranians and work with them to get, say, cameras installed in the nuclear facilities we do know about, to get annual reports, that kind of thing. He has to be pretty diplomatic with them. Usually, whenever he gives conferences about the status with Iran, he uses very reserved language, language that enables him to continue a relationship with the Iranians. In this case, he just let loose at Davos. Here's a quote from what he said at uh, at the summit. Iran hardly cooperates with the International Atomic Energy Agency. The situation is very frustrating. They limit cooperation in a very unprecedented way. And he even claimed that uh, the agency felt it was being held hostage by Iran and some of the pushing they've been doing with the Houthis, with Hamas, with all these other places. Those weren't the only comments he made. He also had a brief interview with Bloomberg that was published yesterday?
3: Well, they, they have enough material uh, for uh, several nuclear war- warheads. This doesn't mean they have them. Let me be clear about this, but it's not banal that uh, they have accumulated so much uh, enriched uranium that this is a possibility. You may remember that a few years ago people were saying, well, uh, it is two months, three months, five months that they would have enough material to, to do this. Now it's a reality. Uh, they are accumulating it. Uh, they, of course, say, and it's their right, they say that it's for civilian uh, purposes, but um, we haven't seen much in terms yeah. of that being used. It is, in fact, being stored.
4: And you can hear from what he was saying. He's saying, like like what Jeremiah said, the quiet part out loud. We often talk about how long until Iran gets the bomb. You just heard from yourself. All this you do is enrich what they have already a little bit more. They already have enough for three bombs. That is not the kind of language we're used to him saying. We're not used to him saying that, yeah, Iran's lying about using their material for civilian purposes. And the fact that he's openly saying this kind of stuff at such a public forum like Davos, which the Iranian foreign minister was also present at, although it looks like those two didn't even talk. Usually anytime they're in the same room, he tries to reach out to them and talk. They didn't even talk this time. That tells you that Iran is extremely close to a bomb. Up until this point, he has been very diplomatic again to try and stop Iran getting a bomb or at least slow them down to use any mechanism he can from his point of view as a mediator, as a diplomat. The only reason he'd be saying this kind of stuff is if that tactic is for sure not working, if that tactic is all about dead in the water because Iran has basically – done everything they can to get to a bomb, regardless of what he's saying. We even have a little in brief uh, put up today about the Iran disallowing the IAEA monitors to inspect its nuclear program. And again, this is from the sites that they've declared. It's the elephant in the room is that Iran has been testing nuclear material in places that it hasn't declared to the IEA, And Grossi, in that interview in a part we didn't play, does mention that they're not answering our questions with why we find this nuclear material all over the place where they haven't told us. But even the sites that they do declare, even the areas that they're willing to play ball with, they kick the international energy monitors out. That tells you we're close. We're heard earlier today, all the different flashpoints in the world, like Taiwan, like the Red Sea, etc. In this case, we're talking about the sponsor of What's going on in the rest? He's a sponsor of Hamas getting nuclear weapons. I mean, that would change the global order tremendously. And Iran has already shown itself brazen in so many different ways, like with Pakistan, like with all these other things. What's going to happen when they have the ultimate weapon? That's the question that nobody wants answered. That's the question that they hope they don't have to answer. But the fact that Grossi is making these kinds of statements is basically means we're going to find out the answer very, very soon.
1: As you put in a note to me, when Grossi, of all people, stops being diplomatic, you know Iran is very close. And we know, I mean, we've been watching this like a hawk. We've known that Iran has been on the verge for a while. But once it has that weapon, once it has that ultimate weapon, that changes
4: everything in the Middle East and far beyond Indeed, the scripture we go to all the time here is Matthew 24, verses 21 and 22, a prophecy by Jesus Christ about what conditions in the world will be like before he returns, what conditions will be like to watch for as we get closer to the return of Christ. And in those verses, he specifies that there will be a great tribulation or a gigantic world crisis that if it's not stopped, not a soul would be saved alive and For most of human history, certainly there have been some deadly weapons used, but nowhere has it come close to where every single human being on Earth would be extinguished. That is talking about, as our editor-in-chief, Mr. Jerof has talked about over and over again, this is about weapons of mass destruction. This is about nuclear weapons and all chemical weapons, biological weapons, etc., Iran is a unique case in that they've, they're the one country that if they got nuclear weapons, they'd use them for the sake of using them, not to deter hostile enemies, not to uh, change the geopolitical chess game. Their ideology of spreading terror, of spreading their Islamic revolution, of causing world chaos so their version of the Messiah could come back means that they want to use this kind of weapon. We don't expect Iran to start this war, per se, but the fact that they're getting close and the fact that the international community is noticing and getting agitated about it means we are getting extremely close to that Matthew 24 outcome. And if our listeners would like to learn more, our editor-in-chief has written a free booklet on our website called Nuclear Armageddon is at the Door. That's Nuclear Armageddon is at the Door. It describes what we can expect uh, with Iran, but more in general, just the Matthew 24 prophecy and what it means for today. So now a warning,
1: and not even from the United States, but a warning in Europe and and among the world elites that Iran is very close to uh, obtaining that nuclear bomb that it has been pursuing for so long. We come now from the Middle East, a little further west and a little further north to the region of Europe. Richard Palmer, you are our Europe watcher. Can you give us an update, sir?
3: Yes, though, we may well end up straying back to the Middle East once again as well. Just like Europe, I often invade the area. But the first story I wanted to mention is that yesterday, NATO announced plans for its biggest exercise since the end of the Cold War. So 90,000 soldiers, 50 ships, 80 aircraft will be joining Steadfast Defender 2024, uh, those exercises will be taking place throughout the month of May NATO said that this will demonstrate NATO's ability to rapidly destroy fo- uh, deploy forces from the nor- from North America and other parts of the alliance to reinforce the defense of Europe these exercises don't specifically name Russia as a target but they give you enough details as to who it is against that it couldn't be any other country apart from NATO re- um, apart from Russia really This gives you a sense of how worried Europe is by Russia that they're having the largest military exercises since the end of the Cold War. The previous record holder for largest exercises was just over half the size of this one. You hear about military exercises all the time. It's hard to know sometimes how big or small they are, but these ones are quite a big deal. And continuing the story of just how fearful Europe is of Russia, build over last weekend, this is Germany's tabloid newspaper, published details of a German defense ministry report that talks about their scenario that they're preparing for that would see a large scale troop buildup and subsequent invasion uh, of Europe from Russia. Now, this is not quite worst case scenario training, but you're kind of looking for what might go wrong in the next few years and preparing for it. I think the worst case scenario would be be a lot worse. So it's not necessarily them saying this is definitely going to happen. But the fact that the German defense ministry is saying, "Okay, we need to prepare for a Russian invasion and put contingency places in, in, in contingency plans in place, again, emphasize this level of fear and that Europe and especially Germany are reacting to and making changes because of this fear.
1: The largest war games, or at least the largest NATO war games since the Cold War, that's definitely uh, a signal. The statements often say, oh, we we armies practice from time to time, you know, (laughs) but those types of exercise are clearly meant to send a message, as you've said there. And we just have been talking a little bit earlier about, like, all these hot spots getting hotter, actual shots fired, it's getting very, very tense out there already here in 2024. And it looks like that'll continue into May. What's the main story from Europe this week, in your opinion?
3: So the EU on January 16th gave its initial approval for a naval mission to the Red Sea. We talked about this on the show last week and about how important this Red Sea region is. Now, several European countries have refused to serve as part of the US mission. Several of these countries have said explicitly when asked by America, I think it was Spain's defense ministry, he said, we won't serve under a unilateral mission. We'll serve as part of NATO or we'll serve as part of EU. We're not serving under the US. Italy said no. France said no. Now we're seeing Europe put together their own military mission. Germany will be sending a frigate. Several others uh, will be sending one down there. And I think there's a couple of important takeaways from this. One is just the significance of Europe refusing to work with the United States and that they would rather go it alone than serve under... it. So now you have two competing Western missions that are all there trying to do the same thing. And it says something that they can't work together and that they weren't able to come up with some kind of joint mission. This says, says something about Europe wanting to be separate from the United States. And... I think you think about these military exercises and that they're having these 90,000 soldiers come over. The SBS of, in many ways, of these military exercises are to emphasize how quickly America can come to Europe's defense. Like, this is what keeps Russia out. Not fear of Europe, fear of America and how quickly American troops can be there on the scene if Russia starts invading. But then you look in the Red Sea and Europe's going it alone. They're saying, well, America, we don't want to participate. And so, of course, then European leaders are asking, well, how much longer is America going to defend us? And is America going to be basically willing to fund our defense if we are acting like this? So you've got Europe kind of starting to build their own separate military power and refusing to cooperate with the United States. That's an important step. The other part, though, that I think is is significant here is they gave their initial approval January 16th. Then there's going to be a few more rounds of meetings where they have to give some more approval. And they're hoping to get this mission underway maybe by mid-February. You compare this to the United States, whose military mission was underway by mid-December. This is two months later in responding to a fast-moving emergency. And there's a story there too, that Europe does need to fundamentally change if they're going to be able to deal with these kind of threats, to live in this kind of world and be able to protect themselves. That's completely non-functional to have that kind of an emergency and talk about it for two months before maybe some ships show up. And we can't even guarantee that, that they will. They gave their initial approval. There are 27 countries and any one of them could step in and veto the whole situation. And the cover of our last Trumpet issue was the Red Sea crisis from Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry. And one of the core points that he made in that issue is watch Europe's response to this crisis. Watch how it changes Europe. And I think this story also emphasizes, yeah, you know, Europe is changing. Europe is separate from America. Europe's sending their own military mission. That's significant. But also how much Europe still needs to change. And you've got to think that this kind of crisis is going to create a lot more urgency in Europe behind that change. This is forcing Europe to make major political changes, not just about the way it manages its military or which ships it positions in the Red Sea, but how do we make decisions? Do we have this system where 27 people meet in a committee over a course of a month and have multiple votes? Or do we have one guy that's in charge. Do we slim things down? Do we get rid of people from the from the European Union uh, and make this something more lean, mean, and manageable? And that is a core change that is prophesied and a core change that we're watching for here at The Trumpet, that... This is one of our most specific forecasts, that Europe will be made up of 10 strong leaders, that there will be a strong man in charge. All of those come very directly from the Bible. You read Revelation 17, it describes a beast that's an empire in biblical symbolism, and it's got 10 heads, which it says right there are 10 kings. So these are very direct prophecies from the Bible, and you can see how these news events are quickly forcing Europe into that direction.
1: So it appears that Europe is thinking this, better to get to the scene of the crime two months late, than to partner with the United States. That's an important thing that it wants to establish here. It seems like they want to get there quicker, uh, but whatever damage is done in that time, they apparently are willing to take it uh, in order to do the hard work of separating from dependence on the United States military and to build Europe's own military machine. That's Richard Palmer on Europe. This is Trumpet Hour on KPCG 101.3 in Edmond, Oklahoma. Stay with us.
0: You're listening to Trumpet Hour, the Week in Review.
1: Welcome back to our final segment this hour here on Trumpet Hour Week in Review. We want to return to a topic that is both domestic and international and personal, more or less the official pregame to the 2024 United States presidential election.
3: That's right. We had the results from the Iowa caucus vote this week, and I think it has sent shockwaves around Maybe not Republican circles, but the left and around the world, where Donald Trump won fifty-one percent of the vote in the Iowa Caucus, which is a stunning victory in terms. Like it is massive. It is huger than huger. I was, we're talking about Donald Trump. I can use words like huger. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it was huger than uh, than any other victory in the Iowa Caucus ever. Like the previous record for an Iowa Caucus victory was Bob Dole in nineteen eighty-eight, where he beat his nearest rival by 13 percentage points. Donald Trump beat his nearest rival by 30 percentage (laughs) points. He beat all the other candidates combined. Like I indicated at the start, I don't think many on the right are surprised to see Donald Trump doing well in these elections. I think, though, that those on the left, many had convinced themselves that there were alternatives, and certainly in other parts of the world that are just that bit more removed from American life and the political, like the the Donald Trump was there and it was a possibility, but not necessarily a particularly probable one. And then they wake up and they see the Iowa caucus results and it's very much a, okay, this really looks like Donald Trump is going to be back this time next
4: year. I think if there's one group that would foresee this kind of scenario happening, it would be the government in Washington right now. I mean, they know regardless of what they tell the media, regardless of what they say about themselves, they know how unpopular Bidenomics, so to speak, are or some of these foreign policy decisions or the southern border, of course. Well, it shows them just not just that he's popular, but just by how much he's popular. And we're going to see that as more and more states have their primaries going on. I think you're going to start to see the Biden White House start to get a little bit more desperate with some of their electioneering. Something that I talk about on this program quite a bit is Israel and Saudi Arabia and the deal that the United States is mediating between them to get a normalization agreement going. On January 11th, Axios had a report about Saudi Arabia and Israel, and it states, quote, the White House wants to try and get a Saudi-Israel normalization deal by the spring. Before the presidential election campaign completely consumes Biden's agenda, end quote. In other words, they want a foreign policy victory for Biden once the election campaign gets into full swing and people are starting to wonder whether or not to vote Democrat again. And even just this whole situation with the Houthis. You think about everything else that Biden and Obama before him have done. The whole reason, as we talked about before, that the Houthis can do this is because America has been empowering them. America has been empowering Iran, who in turn empowers the Houthis, letting them sponsor these groups. When Biden first came in, he stripped the Houthis of their terrorist designation. He pressured Saudi Arabia to disengage from the region from bombing this terror group and trying to kick them out of Yemen. And now that we're getting into an election year, now that everybody's angry with what he's doing in Ukraine, with what he did in Afghanistan, what do we see? All of a sudden, decisive leadership, these repeated uh, strikes on, on these Houthi targets, even on the Capitol. They're back on the terrorists, doing everything that they were just accusing Saudi Arabia of committing war crimes for.
1: People in other parts of the world have to think of the United States as absolutely schizophrenic, like too, too directly Opposing personalities in the same nation. You know, the Houthis are terrorists. Oh, no, they're not. Oh, yes, they are again. Oh, you know, and sometimes it doesn't even take an election to reverse course. But you'll remember that goes back to that Iran nuclear deal, which uh, was implemented on January 16th a few years ago from Barack Obama and Vice President Joe Biden. And now we're at a situation where it's getting out of hand. U.S. ships are being targeted, and people are thinking, I wonder if Donald Trump could solve this. I wonder if the Abraham Accords or something similar could solve this. But how are people on the other side of the world looking at this, Jeremiah Jacques?
0: Yeah, I wanted to throw in a quick note about China and Russia. China first. The day after the Iowa caucus, the Chinese state-run newspaper Global Times published an article saying that China is fully expecting Trump to be back. And this piece says that this means a much less predictable America and a much more divided America in terms of its you know internal cohesion and uh, the Chinese are especially concerned about how another Trump term would specifically affect u s china ties. you know during his first term, Trump imposed tariffs on Chinese imports, and he took some measures against china 's spy campaigns in America. He even sought redress from China for causing the COVID pandemic. And Biden did leave much of those measures in place, most notably the tariffs. But even still, the Chinese think that with four more years, Trump would likely take a firmer stance against China than than in his first term. There are fears among the Chinese that Trump will revoke the permanent normal trading relations status that China was granted back in 2000, while it was joining the World Trade Organization. That would be just a massive move dealing a major blow to China's economy, but analysts think that Trump's goal will be to truly decouple from China. So this and more could be in the offing. Now with Russia, the situation is quite different. The Russians under Vladimir Putin have made no effort to disguise how overjoyed really they are to see Trump coming back. And it's not hard to see, see why that is. If we go back to 2015, just after Trump declared his first presidential bid, Trump said, quote, I think I would just get along very well with Vladimir Putin. And then, of course, during his four years in the White House, Trump proved that that was true. He broke with American policy by saying it was fine for Russia to keep the Crimean Peninsula, that it had illegally seized. He said he didn't mind Russia's cyber attacks on America. Trump even forbade his administration from publishing a statement on the 10th anniversary of Russia's war against Georgia, And that statement would have condemned Russia's illegal land grab. You know, that war was when Russia seized one-fifth of Georgia's land, and Trump would not allow his government to condemn that. So Russia, they couldn't believe their luck with the U.S. president, who basically seemed fine with Russia dismantling the rules-based order and invading whoever they wanted, taking land here and there. Trump editor-in-chief, Cheryl Flurry, wrote about some of this at that time. Emphasizing Trump's uh, relationship with Putin, especially, Mr. Flurry wrote, quote, How can Mr. Trump foster a profitable relationship with a man who has such disgusting, devastating, satanic policies? Can God get along with the devil? End quote. So a pretty scathing condemnation there of Trump's soft stance toward Putin's Russia And we know that Trump also wants to dismantle NATO, which could scarcely be a bigger victory for the Russians. And Trump has also long said that he could solve Russia's current war on Ukraine in 24 hours by forcing Ukraine to give Russia a lot of its eastern land. So the Russians are just overjoyed to hear all of that because as we talked about in the first half, that would give them a chance to regroup, rebuild their forces and then use their positions in the east to take the rest of Ukraine a few years later, just as Dmitry Medvedev made clear this week as we spoke about in the first half. So a deal like that would be just a big win for Russia. And for this reason, they are delighted with the Iowa Caucasus results and uh, Trump's imminent return to power. So kind of a mixed bag there from Asia, and it means we have a lot to keep on watching. That's right.
1: Strong leader in Asia and a strong leader in Russia monitoring and having their own angles on the emergence of a strong leader in the United States. Someone who, remember, right after the 2020 election and that aftermath, there was a pretty good feeling around the world and here in America that we're done with President Donald Trump. And now, at least in some parts of America, the vibe is it's almost inevitable that he's, yeah. that he's coming back. You just can't stop him. Uh, what about the perspective from Europe?
3: Yeah, I think the Iowa caucuses is, is the biggest European news this wow. week. This has been what Europe has been talking about. So the, the current holder of the rotating presidency of the European Union, the Belgian prime minister, he basically said, well, this is an opportunity. He said, Donald Trump, we need to embrace it because it means putting Europe on a more solid footing, more sovereign, more self-reliant. I mean, there's a mixture of people freaking out and people seeing it as an opportunity. Like it's the same conflicted response that we talked about with Europe in the Red Sea. For some, it is the United States is what keeps Europe safe. America pays the bulk of the price of European protection. And so the idea of your police force potentially moving out, you know, Donald Trump has talked about ending NATO. He is certainly not willing, really, or not happy with this idea of America keeps spending money to protect Europe. And then, you know, like we see in the Red Sea, Europe isn't fundamentally even on the same side as America I think that there are some very reasonable questions to be asking about that. So in that side of things, some people are kind of freaking out. And then there are others saying, well, this is an opportunity for us to replace the United States, to to stand on our own. So to give the whole range of some of those reactions, you have the former German foreign minister, Joschka Fischer, who is from the Green Party, the most pacifist part of the German political spectrum, really, saying, if Donald Trump is elected, Germany needs to double its defense spending. Wow. Like this would mean a Germany spending two or three times more on its defense than Russia does. That's what he's saying. This whole discussion that we talked about a few weeks ago about Europe getting nuclear weapons, that has really kicked up a notch. Lots of people are talking about that. There is a, a, the, an article in, in a Swiss newspaper. The next day, a separate nuclear umbrella for Europe. The prospect of a Trump victory is spurring a new debate over nuclear weapons. French President Emmanuel Macron is very much in the kind of this is an opportunity side of things where the spectator wrote that Macron has dreamed of closer integration of France being absorbed into a United States of Europe. He said a Trump victory in November would hasten Macron's ambitions for a United States of Europe. So reviled as Trump by the European elite that they would regard a disengagement from his America as merciful release. This is one of the things that could finally make this United States of Europe happen. That if America's not protecting Europe, then radical change is necessary, just like we talked about with the Red Sea, to make this happen. And then I think it's also worth watching a man that we talked a lot about in our latest Trumpet print edition, Carl Theodosio-Gutenberg, because he really has played a leading role in Europe with anti-Trump rhetoric. You know, he In November, he talked about the blonde bully may once again be taking the reins into his side. And so... He's a very loud anti-Trump voice, and I think if Donald Trump comes back, we could expect his voice to get a lot louder and see him taking on a a leading role within Europe, which is exactly what we've been watching for for a great many years now. So this is another news story that really has the potential to push Bible prophecy into high gear in Europe as it finally gets leaders to, to get around a new United States of Europe with a strong military and its own nuclear protection. So the very
1: small, very, very early official beginning of the 2024 United States presidential election, you can see people reacting to it. Sometimes I think I can see people doing what they want to do anyway and using <laughs> using the most recent event as an excuse. All the more reason for me to do what I already wanted to do. I think I can see some of that in some of those European leaders, Andrew Miller. We started with you talking about Iowa. Let's get your your final thought on the upshot of the Iowa caucuses here, right at the end.
2: This is an enormous victory. I think Mr. Stephen Flurry said on his radio program that like you have to go back when um, he was in high school, like back to the like the Bob Dole days of the early '90s, to find someone who won this big of a victory in the primaries which I definitely think a lot of Americans uh, on the left are getting nervous and on the right they're getting excited showing that uh, Donald Trump is coming back. I mean, he got more than twice as many votes as Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley. So its I, I don't think any rational news commentator thinks there's any chance that Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley is going to be the Republican nominee. And with this much popular support behind the Republican nominee, he's got just a really good chance of uh, not only sweeping the Republican primary despite all the leftist lawfare against him, but doing really well in the fight against the Democrats at the end of the year as well, which is important at times like these to take a step back, not not to – toot our own horn too much. Uh, our own trumpet. <laughs> but our, our editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Flurry, his trumpet, why I still believe Donald Trump is coming back, was written like right after his alleged defeat in the 2020 election when all the political pundits were saying that Trump is washed up, he's going to be impeached, he could go to jail. Trump himself
1: had a, a lot less fight You know, he had poured it all into uh, several of these, you know, court cases, maybe Supreme Court cases, got rejected, wouldn't even be heard in any of them. And I remember watching him and and looking for his response, and it was not a done deal that he was going to have the energy and power to fight this thing again. But there was a time when even Trump himself looked a little tired of all this. uh, But now he's coming roaring back.
2: Yeah, so that is something that um – being a political analyst who sticks his neck out and says that Trump is coming back is not a risky move to take. It was a, it was a bold prediction three years ago. There might still be some debate amongst those who look at the issue as to whether he's going to succeed in exposing the stolen election and uh, getting into office again that way, or whether he is going to have to run through another election campaign this November. But the general consensus is that like, like Trump is definitely very much a force to be reckoned with in Republican politics. Three years ago, it did not look like that was the case. But now you're seeing some primary victories that are bigger than anything we've seen in a number of decades. Well, yeah,
1: the caucus. That's all the time we have here on Trumpet Hour. It is only an hour, so uh, we'll wrap it up there. Email us your thoughts on the program at letters at the Uh Thanks to Richard Palmer, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, and Mihailo Zekic, as well as Parker Campbell and Isaac Lorenz for engineering and production. Thank you for listening to The Weekend Review, and we look forward to being back with you here on Trumpet Hour.